and welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Today we'll be talking about Pal Joey, opened in 1940 with music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Lawrence Hart, book by John O'Hara, with an assist by George Abbott, directed by George Abbott, and choreographed by Robert Alton. Great. Uh, what familiarity did you have with Pal Joey, Hannah, before uh, this, this podcast endeavor? Um, very little, I'd say. I know that my, my parents, I think, saw it when I was young. I remember being in, in New York during, um, well, I guess that would have been the revival. So at this point, what, that's like nine years ago. Um, and I remember them seeing it and not liking it. Um, and that is the only information I went in with. Um, so yeah. I would, yeah. The revival didn't get great reviews, actually. Um, Interesting. And I think this isn't sort of old shows. I guess we'll get more into this, but old shows that are sort of focused on being light, trivial, fun kind of hold up as like, oh, you know, we still could use some light, trivial, fun. But shows that were trying to be darker and serious in 1940 might not hold up as well because we have our own dark and serious musicals that are much more dark and serious and much more realistic. So the old dark and serious stuff doesn't feel as current yeah now i'm like what's the equivalent of pal joey today i mean maybe that's a good question for later like what's what is pal joey fluff in 2017 yeah maybe we come back to that <laughs> yeah we should i can't think of anything off the top of my head so yeah. let's sit on know. that and heathers, come back to it maybe heathers all right to be continued anyway so yeah take it away jeremy i know that you did some research on pal joey um being the good historian that you are <laughs> I did. Uh, so we're going to start off, I'm going to give a little bit of background on Rogers and Hart, the songwriting duo, um, because they were extremely important to early Broadway. Um, now, a lot of you in the audience have probably heard of Rogers and Hammerstein, who, you know, wrote Oklahoma, Sound of Music, uh, The King and I, all those great shows. But um, before then, Rogers and Hammerstein were in separate partnerships. We already went over Hammerstein and Kern. They did Showboat. Um, and today we're going to talk about Rogers and Hart, who were an extremely prolific duo. So quick biographical information on them. Richard Rogers uh, was born in 1907. Uh, Lawrence Hart was born in 1895, so Hart was a little older. Um, they were both born in New York, both born to immigrant Jewish families, and they both went to Columbia University, although not at the same time. Um, Rogers and his whole career, and this is, so this is Hart, and also Hammerstein, and he also worked with some other people after Hammerstein, like Stephen Sondheim for an obscure musical. But he, in his what? career, wrote. Yeah, we'll get. I, I forget which one it is, but um, it's probably the Frogs. It probably wasn't the Frogs. <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, Do I hear a waltz? Do I hear a waltz? So uh, Richard Rogers uh, attended Columbia University at the time. He already was sort of writing music for himself, and he was a big fan of Victor Herbert, who was the big American uh, light opera person at the time. And he was a big fan of Jerome Kern, who was Hammerstein's partner at the time. Um, little did he know that he'd be replacing Jerome Kern before too long. Uh, but Rogers uh, met Hart. So I guess a uh, quick detour over to Hart. Hart was a little older. Um, always wanted to be a playwright. In 1918, he started translating German plays into English for the Schubert brothers. And the Schubert brothers are the same Schuberts who are responsible for the Schubert Foundation to this day. Mm. So they've always been big Broadway royalty since, you know, 19-teens. Mm. Um, and um, according to Stephen Holden, a writer in the New York Times, 
Many of Hart's ballad lyrics conveyed a heart-stopping sadness that reflected his conviction that he was physically too unattractive to be lovable. And the writer also noted, in his lyrics, as in his life, Hart stands as a compellingly lonely figure. Although he wrote dozens of songs that are playful, funny, and filled with clever wordplay, it is the rueful vulnerability beneath their surface that lends them a singular poignancy. Um, So, Hart was a very sad person. Um, He lived with his widowed mother, he suffered from alcoholism, and would sometimes disappear for weeks at a time on alcoholic binges. Um, Many of his lyrics were the confessional outpourings of a hopeless romantic who loathed his own body. I got that from Wikipedia. He stood just under five feet tall, wreathed himself in cigar smoke. Um, He was a homosexual in the era of the closet. Um, And according to Wikipedia, he pursued a secretive and tormented erotic life, which only hints appear in his songs. So he was a depressed, short, sad, closeted man. um, But was nonetheless like the most popular lyricist of his era. So... Um, and he was famous at, well, during his life. This isn't a Van Gogh situation. Oh, no, no, no. Him comparison to draw, but... Yeah. Rogers and Hart were, like, the, the peak of, of mainstream. Right. Um, I mean, you had your, your Cole Porters and your Gershwins were also huge. But Rogers and Hart, they were putting out at least one popular musical per year. Sometimes they would release multiple musicals <laughs> per year. And then the songs from these musicals, the, uh, the sheet music would get sent out, or later on, you know, like, records would get sent out. I mean, these... These guys were the biggest hit makers of their day. It's hmm. um, fascinating. I did not know about his uh, his loneliness or his his side sort of. I don't know. Pain. I actually didn't <laughs> either, but it sort of helps you to understand why Pal, a show like Pal Joey is so much darker and sort of yeah. more cynical than Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Right. There is like a, a cynical cynicalness, a cynicism. That's the word. English major. Um, there's a cynicism to it. Uh, I just think about how it's essentially about like two love stories that don't work out, right? Yeah, but two love stories with the same guy in each one of them, neither right. of them work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's uh, like I, I was reading the synopsis on Wikipedia because that's how I do my research. Uh, and I was like, who's interested in this story? So maybe this is a good segue into you telling us about the plot of Pal Joey. Well, first, I haven't yet covered <laughs> Rogers and Hart meeting in, in their career. Sorry, guys. A little, Sorry, a little more history. Come. We're almost, we'll we're almost there. We're so close. Great. No, okay, Rogers and Hart. Introduce, they were introduced by a friend in 1919 while Rogers was uh, still at Columbia, and they started writing amateur and student shows at Columbia. Uh, quick side note to point out that people who write lyrics for Columbia University student productions <laughs> are the best. The best. Sort of <laughs> uh, Jeremy, would you like to make a plug for any particular lyricist? <laughs> uh, no, I can't think of anyone. Anyway, um, here's a, a quote by Rogers about their meeting. Rogers said, quote, What really brought us together was our mutual conviction that the musical theater, as demonstrated by the pioneering efforts of Bolton, Woodhouse, and Kern, was capable of achieving a far greater degree of artistic merit in every area than was apparent at the time. We had no idea exactly how it could be done, but we both knew that we had to try. End quote. And also, uh, Bolton, Woodhouse, and uh, Kern, who I mentioned, they did the uh, Princess Theater musicals, which were sort of a precursor to the more um, integrated shows that, uh, like Showboat and, and this. Um, so Princeton Theater musicals? We, we didn't cover them. Yeah, we didn't cover the uh, yeah we didn't cover the Princess Theater shows in this show because no, no one of them was sort of like famous enough for, for us oh, to sort Princess of spend Theater. an episode on. I thought you said Princess. Princeton Theater. Okay, oh, no, no, no. Different. 
It was an actual <laughs> building called the Princess Theater, and that was where they would do their shows. And they were like, for the time, sort of the peak. And when I say for the time, I mean like turn of the century time or like the Great. teens or something. Okay. Um, all right, so these two get together, Rogers and Hart. Their first hit was uh, 1925, The Garrick Gaieties, which was a musical review in a um, building called uh, the Garrick Theater. And that was the site of their first hit song, Manhattan. So we're going to take a pause right here, and I'll play just a few seconds of the song, Manhattan. We'll have Manhattan, and Staten Island, too. It's lovely going through the zoo. So you can hear that's a very jazzy song. Um, <laughs> I, I'd never heard of it before, but that was their first hit. Um, they had some more hits later. Um, they had shows like Jumbo and um, On Your Toes and then Babes in Arms <laughs> from 1937. And... You've heard of Babes in Arms, right? Um, I remember earlier when we were talking about Babes in Toyland, and that was sort of a, a rabbit hole. That's all. Oh yeah, I that was a rabbit hole. <laughs> I think it was the same thing where I said I said this, I was like, you've heard of Babes in Toyland, right? And then we went to Rudolph. Um, yeah, it's fine. So anyway, also, just viewers, ba- just people listening at home, just a side note: I haven't heard the song Manhattan, and just know that during that uh, chunk where you were listening to Manhattan. Jeremy was trying to describe to me what it sounded like, and he said, oh, it's uh, it's jazzy. And then we cut back in, and he said, yeah, it's a jazzy song. So anyway, I just want you all to know that about uh, your host, uh, Jeremy. Uh, please continue, sir. Uh, that yeah, I tried really undermine I you. wanted to, like... <laughs> I wanted to like have us play it for so we could hear it ourselves, but right, then like but it just it wasn't working. Anyway, um, we're very professional podcasters over here. Well, luckily, I'm about to play two more clips, and this time I won't have right. to tell them to Hannah because I feel like she probably already knows these two songs. So, yes. "Babes in Arms" is responsible for the only other two hits of Rogers and Hammers, or not Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart <laughs> that I already heard. Um, the two songs are "The Lady Is a Tramp" and "My I Funny Valentine." I love that song interesting it's interesting to put together that those are both rogers and Hart songs just thinking about the cynicism and the sadness because those are both very sort of droopy songs in their own way yeah so first for the audience quick clip of uh the lady is a tramp by ella fitzgerald and then we'll follow that by a quick clip of my funny valentine uh so here you go quick clips she gets too hungry for dinner at eight I never bother with people I hate. That's why the lady is a tramp. Is your figure less than Greek? Is your mouth a little weak? And we're back. Uh, so just so you know, actually, that little clip of my funny Valentine I just played, uh, that was from Britain's Got Talent 2014, uh, a singer named Alice Frednam, and it has 40 million views on YouTube. So even to this day, uh, my funny Valentine, the show, the song from 1937, can have a video that's with 40 million 
hits on YouTube. So Rogers and Hart, still relevant, never went away. So uh, Pal Joey, it was uh, directed by George Abbott, who was a huge writer, director, and producer on Broadway at the time. He was kind of the Hal Prince of his day, and in fact, Hal Prince was his protege. Um, Interesting. But for now, George Abbott is the guy. Um, He not only directed shows, but he would often doctor the book. Like, the show would go out into out-of-town tryouts, and then while the playwright wasn't looking, George Abbott would just sort of spruce it up because he knew what the audience liked in musical theater at the time. So he did that here. Um, it's based, the actual book was by John O'Hara based on a series of short stories he published in The New Yorker about the seedy uh, Chicago nightclub owner named Joey. Uh, O'Hara approached Rodgers and Hart and was like, hey, you should make a musical out of my stories. They did. Abbott fixed it up a little bit. Um, it starred Vivian Siegel and Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, this was not his very first big break. He had uh, been a dancer in a Cole Porter show, Leave It to Me at which point he was discovered by Robert Alton, the, chore- the choreographer of Pal Joey. Um, he had a big role dancing in a play, a straight play, but he danced in it. Um, mm-hmm. And then he was in this show. And you all out there might know him best, Gene Kelly, as being the star of Singing in the Rain, the movie from 1952. Right. And he was also the star of the movie An American in Paris the year before that. And he was in Brigadoon in 1954. Um, and you might not know that he also directed the Hello, Dolly movie in 1969. Gene Kelly did. I did not know that. That is fascinating. He did. Um, so anyway, yes, uh, this is a show, Pal Joey. Not a lot of like backstage hijinks. Basically, the plot is you have a Chicago nightclub owner who's a very seedy, cynical guy. Uh, he hits on one woman. Um, honestly, I don't even have... I don't even have their names in front of me because I just like it. So anyway, so he hit, he hits so, on like there's Linda, there's Linda, and then there's the one who's not Linda. Linda's the nice one, right? So right. He, so he Linda's Lin, the nice one. Linda's nice. He hits on Linda. Oh yeah, right. Linda English. He hits on Linda, uh, but um, he sings a whole song to her. We'll get to that later on. He meets Vera Simpson, who is this bored, rich socialite. She decides to make him her project. She takes him in. She sort of gives him an apartment, their little den of iniquity. They have an affair. Later on... Den of iniquity. <laughs> yes. Uh, later on, there's danger that their affair will be exposed, so she dumps him, takes away his apartment. He's poor again. Uh, can't get Linda the nice girl either. Ends up with no one, but he doesn't care. He's back to where he started. Uh, nothing phases Joey. Uh, yeah, end. it's such a, a strange plot. I mean, I kind of want to jump right into it. Um it seems like it's really just about the charisma of Joey, essentially. I mean, I think it's worth noting that Frank Sinatra also played Joey uh, in the film, right? Yeah, um, he did. And, yeah, it's kind of not about what actually happens. Right, um, the plot's irrelevant, I would say. But it's not irrelevant in the same way that some of those old plots, like Anything Goes, is irrelevant. Sure. Where, like, mm-hmm. Those plots existed just to justify the music. It isn't the same way with this. They sort right, of are trying point. to say something, and the music mostly does serve the plot such as it is it's just the plot isn't like trying to tell you a story so much as like show you this guy and show you this world yeah it feels character driven i think that's a really good point like Mm -hmm. i mean it's called pal joey the whole point is uh you know like you said before you know nothing phases joey um and it's interesting because the music sort of has this like uh feel to it but then it also has that sadness uh that you aptly described as typical of Rogers and Hart. Um, you know, in some ways, like, Bewitched to me stands out. Um, 
maybe we get right into that. Uh, that's like probably my favorite song, certainly from the show. It's a, a song I grew up listening to. I've played in bands before. Did not know it was from Pal Joey. That's a true revelation. Um, but in some ways feels like a standout in the music because it's sort of the slowest and the swingiest. Um, and the other songs have like a little more of sort of like a, a manic feel to them, I would say. Yeah, let's let's play a little clip of Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewitched. That'd be great. And we're back. Um, yeah, that song, I, I knew that as well. I actually played it in like high school band, like a concert yeah. band. I had no idea where it came from. Um, it's very sad. Like, because so at sad. that point, at that point, they're together and everything is sort of, it's sort of the peak of their relationship. Mm. But she's sort of sad about it. I, I, I don't know. It's very, it, it really yeah. draws you in. It really. You sort of stop talking. Yeah, you you sort of, like, you have to pay attention to it. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm interested, too, in, uh, like, what you just said. Um, Vera Simpson's character, um, there's sort of like a, a, um, like a detached kind of acceptance of, like, oh, this is the way of the world um, to her character. Like, at no point do I think she thinks she's going to end up happy with joey it's sort of this like defeatist attitude of like well this is what's happening now you know uh which i think is interesting and does give her like a little more agency uh in the script i mean i do appreciate i mean the whole play is about these two women pursuing this man who sort of uh d- d- seems unworthy by the end um but they don't Both seem of them. terribly right i mean this is true they don't all seem uh the women don't seem too sorry for themselves about joey like i feel like they're moving on uh, does that make sense? Yeah, which is for the best because both of them are too good for him. And, right. Yeah. yeah, I feel like the musical knows that they're too good for him. I think. I think. Yeah. I don't no, know. I, I don't it, know if I could defend that in a court of law, but I think it definitely. I think the musical knows that they're both too good for him. Um, yeah. Uh, so Gene Kelly actually has a quote about uh, Joey and how he played him. He said Joey was someone who would accept his promiscuity as a matter of course, completely unaware of the hurt he was causing. And just when he was being especially offensive, I'd look down at the audience, smile at them, and go into a song and dance, turning the character around almost. I instinctively felt this was the right approach. And when director George Abbott did nothing to stop me from pursuing it, I stuck to it. But I was worried as hell at first. I said to O'Hara, Jesus, they're going to hate me so much, I'll never get through the first act. And he said, no, they're going to hate Joey, but they're going to like you. End quote. And, I mean, that sounds true. Everyone loves Gene Kelly. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, huh. I mean, yeah, that sort of gets into the, I don't know, the theory or the psychology of playing uh, uh, sort of like a, I don't know, a likable bad guy. Um, there's a better word for that. What's the literary term? Anti-hero. An anti-hero. Anti-hero. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm interested in Joey as an anti-hero, I suppose. Um, I think that that's like a, an interesting way to look at, look at him. Um, could you tell me more maybe about... 
uh, I don't know, the when it came out, like the politics of the day, did Joey represent anything particular, or is he just sort of an everyman? So I know that these comics, or these, not comics, they were short stories really popular in The New Yorker, and I think the idea was like, this is kind of your typical Chicago, seedy, nightclub mm-hmm. kind of guy, maybe to a New York audience. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing sort of broad, like a massive national political thing. It's, it's more sure. just sort of like, oh, look at this. There's seedy characters like this all over today, and mm-hmm. this, this guy is just one of them. Right. Um, you grew up in Chicago, so you have perhaps a, an in that I do not have. <laughs> maybe, although Chicago is quite different than it was in uh, 1940 fair. in the Al Capone. That's a really fair point era um but yeah the show well one interesting thing is the show was not extremely well received uh by critics at the time uh brooks atkinson who is the new york times critic that we will we've talked about him before and we'll talk about him a lot in the future he is the big new york times critic for this entire era um and he said that the lyrics to bewitched were scabrous what do you know what scabrous means i don't know what scabrous means scabrous i mean it sounds like uh, it sounds critical. I'd say that's a negative term. It does sound it does sound critical. Um, and then he yeah. said, "This is a quote about scabrous. the rest of the show." I, I just had to say that because I was like, "What's like we should, if anyone should know what scabrous means?" I'm looking oh. up scabrous. Okay. Continue. Uh, you do that while I read this quote by him about the show. Brooks Atkinson said, "If it is possible to make an entertaining musical comedy out of an odious story, Pal Joey <laughs> is it." Um, and then he concluded Great. rhetorically, "Although it is expertly done." Can you draw sweet water from a foul well? I did read that on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, scabrous means uh, several definitions. Difficult, naughty. Uh, naughty is in K-N-O-T-T-Y, not naughty. Um, also rough to the touch, such as having small raised dots, scales, or points. Um, also dealing with suggestive, indecent, or scandalous themes. I think that's the one um, that he's going for. probably is the one. I mean, I don't know. Was Bewitched particularly indecent at the time? I guess. I mean, it's like sultry. Yeah, it probably was. I mean, we just watched Anything Goes and Showboat. There wasn't anything scandalous about those, to my recollection. This is true. Yeah, I mean, right, there is a... This is interesting. Um, yeah, I wonder about, you know, Pal Joey sort of, I don't know, the, the seedy nightclub owner um, who's sort of, you know, playing multiple women. Um, I wonder. I wonder if that felt, uh, at the time, uh, very scandalous, you know? It probably did. I mean, just like having such a dark sort of realistic musical in the sense that it doesn't end happy and sometimes people are just right. in it for sex and there's not a romance that's going to win the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, so Brooks Atkinson changed his mind. Uh, they did a revival in 1952. And at this point, uh, shows like Oklahoma and the Rodgers and Hammerstein era had come and sort of gotten everyone used to more serious fare. So Brooks Atkinson seeing it again in 1952 said the show is a pioneer in the moving back of musical frontiers for it tells an integrated story with a knowing point of view and then even later on uh brooks atkinson would say that uh the golden age of musical theater began with pal joey in 1940 and went to west side story in 1957 so he really turned around on this one interesting huh and I, mean, I should also note Larry Stemple, who's uh, he's the writer of the book that I've been drawing a lot from, um, called Showtime, and uh, he points out that most 
theater historians would now agree the Golden Age goes from Oklahoma in 1943 to Fiddler on the Roof in 1964. But Pale Joey to West Side Story, which is what Brooks Atkinson said, is not the worst. I mean, it makes sense. This is a... Uh, yeah, Pale Joey seems like... Uh, uh, I can draw a distinction between it and the other shows we've looked at so far in that it's really about like specific human relationships, right, over like a very set... Uh, length of time in a way that you know if you look at showboat right the first show we talked about there's like 15 different characters to track it takes place essentially over a full generation of life um uh I, you know that's true even even in anything goes it takes place over a long voyage and uh we're really tracking like many 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 relationships right um we have pal joey and it's really about just this love triangle essentially um uh you know these are the only characters I think that we even have names so far, and uh, it's just about their interplay, you know, in this location over the course of this one relationship, um, and that does feel to me like a, a shift, you know. Yeah, and it's also you could with Showboat that sort of revolutionized theater, but it also didn't because immediately after that there was nothing else like Showboat. That it was just one of a kind. But then this show, mm-hmm. it's not quite where we're going to get to in Oklahoma, but it's it's close to getting to that point. And it's only three years before Oklahoma with the same music writer. So you can very clearly see the through line from Pal Joey to Oklahoma right. in modern musicals. Uh, so it's easier to say I mean, it, it, Pal Joey was the beginning of something where you can't say that Showboat was the beginning of the Golden Age because it was then followed by like 15 years of just the same stuff that had been there before Showboat. Sure. I mean, it's interesting. I'm thinking about Porgy and Bess now, too, and how... You know, in some ways, that was really an investigation of one relationship, but not really. We had we had the pairings. We had the pairings of uh, sort of the two different main couples, and then the whole town. Um, you know, Chicago feels present in this this show. Um, the setting feels present. Like I think that even listening to the music, you have a sense of the world they live in. But yeah, I really don't think that uh, we're meant to care too much about the society uh other than like beyond these three characters you know what i mean yeah especially because yeah because i mean they live in a city they live in a big city not the same as new york but you know kind of similar so the new yorkers in the audience already know the society they don't need to learn a whole new society for the show they only need to care about these specific characters um who a lot of them might recognize people in their own personal lives who are similar to these characters so there's not as much world right. building. It's it's really very character. It's a character driven show, as you, as you said earlier. Well, that's an interesting point too. I mean, I was just thinking about uh, I don't know musicals starting to really be more about uh, holding the mirror up to society. Um, we looked at Porgy and Bess last week, which was uh, some white Jewish immigrants attempting to write about uh, the African American experience uh, in the Carolinas, and this is um, let's see a sad gay Jewish man um, writing about being a sad man in Chicago. Uh, (laughs) So it's just slightly fewer, uh, slightly fewer logical steps uh, for for him to take to get inside that experience. Um, I would, I would posit. And John O'Hara, who wrote the book, um, he, based on the fact that his name is John O'Hara, I get the impression he's probably (laughs) Irish. Um, And I mean, Joey's, probably irish too you know like we, we don't know maybe he's not maybe he's something right else but... john o'hara was an american writer. just making terrible assumption short stories novelist novelist um unclear where he came from um 
Perhaps the most popular serious author of his time, he was preeminent among his contemporaries at depicting social, including sexual, realism. Oh man, it's so interesting. Oh, how the times have changed. So I think what I'm beginning to realize is, uh, I don't know, the, the, the level of sexuality in Pal Joey uh, was probably quite avant-garde for the time. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, I, I even it, even for our time, in, in my handwritten notes as I was listening to the soundtrack, um, I wrote mm-hmm. the word sexual and then drew a bunch of arrows <laughs> at all of the songs. Uh, right. just, you can sort of, sex is just on everyone's mind, and even when, I mean, there's certain lines or something about, like, he's at his best when he's horizontal. I, I think that's a line right. from one of the songs. So it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty on the nose. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. That's interesting. Um, yeah, in, in a nice way, uh, well, I don't know. I might backpedal on this, but um, it's interesting that, like, Pal Joey, in some ways, is sort of like the sexual object of the story, um, in a way. I mean, he's objectifying women, clearly, but, um, you know, he's he's sexualized in a way that I often feel like uh, traditionally men on stage in musicals are sort of kept safe from. That's a good point. Vera is kind yeah. of the the predator here, and he yeah, that's interesting. What's kind of interesting is he sort of views Linda as prey. And there's the the first good song that I'd actually heard. I think before this was uh, I could write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, like yeah, da, da, I could write a book. <laughs> if they ask me, I could write a book about the way you walk and whisper. He's sort of flirting with Linda and giving her this sort of traditional Rogersy love song, even though he clearly is not like the Rogersy loving type. But he's sort of right. wooing her and tricking her and seducing her with this song, ultimately to no avail. Um, right. So he's sort of preying on her, like he, you know, he's just like a regular sized fish, and she's a minnow. And then the shark Vera comes in, and and she <laughs> and she really knows you know what's going on, and just takes advantage of him for a while mm. um yeah it's worth noting um well, do you know the name off the top of your head of the uh woman who sang vera in that original recording yes vivian siegel her voice is something uh i just love her voice like i just just loved listening to her on the soundtrack uh she reminds me in some ways of ethel merman i think because of the brassiness of her voice um, but just compared to sort of some of the like more light sopranos that we've been listening to, her voice is really throaty and brassy. Um, and as a deep voiced deep voiced lady, uh, I appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, no, she's uh, really good. I looked her up to see if there was other stuff we've heard of that she's been in, but this was her most notable role. Yeah, she has this big, 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 big old voice, and in some ways, like uh, I wonder if that actually ties into this idea of her sort of as the shark. Um, in the in the show, I mean, I think we traditionally think of like a light soprano as being more of sort of a, a withering character, um, which you know is bullshit. Pardon my language, but um, she has sort of this lower, this brassier, almost like an alto feel to her songs, mm-hmm. uh, which I probably is because we were giving her more power in the story. I would guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I hadn't mm. thought. Yeah, I guess uh, 
in general, you'll use like a soprano to be the young person and the older oh, yeah, woman. Right. Will, yeah. Um, I mean, thoroughly modern Millie comes to mind when you have Millie, and then you have like the the friend she switches with who just has the high, 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 high voice. Although she ends yes. up pulling it off in the end. Anyway, that's a whole diversion. Um, other interesting thing about this musical. So this show is kind of cabaret esque, and I mean cabaret is in the musical cabaret, um, uh-huh. in that you have two separate groups of songs. You have the songs that are actual plot songs where the people are singing about each other. Um, like there's one song actually called Pal Joey, and this is a huge step. I mean, anything goes, right. none of the songs had anything to do with the story itself. We have a song here called Pal Joey, and like a couple lines mm-hmm. in that are, I own a nightclub that's tops, and then he later calls it Shay Joey, they'll pay Joey. So he's actually singing about Joey, the character in a musical. This is, I mean, this is an integrated book and score. However, we also have songs, so like Cabaret, we also have songs that are not about the characters. They're just sort of mm-hmm. like, the, now they all work in a cabaret. These are songs that are sung by people in the cabaret. And a big step that right. cabaret takes is that it has those songs sort of, even though they're not about the characters, they comment on the characters and they comment on German society at the time. These right. songs don't. But it's still kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Like you're sort of, they have one foot in the old Broadway style of just random dance numbers while also having a, a foot in the new style of, which we're going to see a lot of starting with Oklahoma, of like, I'm singing about Joey and I'm actually going to say the word Joey in the lyrics because that's who we're singing about. Right. <laughs> mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, I don't know. It's interesting to think about that. It's interesting to think about how the way we told stories through musicals continued to change. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering the, about, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying the phrase for um, a song, like in the world of the musical, they're all aware that a song is being performed right now. That's called the diegetic song. Um, right. And then a song that like, they're just having a random conversation and suddenly it turns into music. And like, they don't realize that they're singing a musical theater song. We just see them singing it. That would be a, a non-diegetic song. Unless I got it reversed, but I think I got it right. I've never heard either of those terms before, so it's all Greek to me. Um, mm-hmm. That's interesting, though. I mean, there is a sense of patter, right? I mean, I talked about that earlier in the score that, to me, feels sort of old-timey, even though we have sort of this, like, sweeping romanticism, um, this sort of crooning, uh, I like to call it, um, that feels a little more of of the era of the 50s, right? This was the 50s. Did I make that up? Yeah, this is 1940. Oh, the 40s. Damn it. Um, oh, this is why I'm not the historian. But uh, there also is, like, the, sort of the... the I don't know, the, the, the patter feeling, right, that, like, we have from, uh, I don't know, uh, it almost feels like Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I know what you mean, um, yeah, actually, I don't know what you mean, I just, I just said that, because you, <laughs> you know, I didn't want... You just said that to, you just sort of blindly supporting me. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to shoot you down. songs, yeah, you don't want to shoot me down, that's fine, that's fine. All right. I mean, I think it's worth noting, like, in some ways, like, we came, I came into this knowing um, there's sort of, you know, Pal Joey feels like a lot less extreme than some of the other musicals we've talked about so far, right? I mean, there's in some ways, like, a lot less to unpack, it feels like. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we've also been talking about shows that deal, like, heavily with racial themes. And, right. Uh, this is just a bunch of white people treating each other semi-poorly in Chicago. Yeah. Which is, you know... <laughs> How, how yeah stuff. <laughs> what, what's yeah. what's changed um what's changed oh man um 
Are there other songs in Pal Joey that you would like to, to discuss? I mean, I really encountered the show mostly through the score. Um, you know, we chose not to watch the film version because we felt like uh, it was very different than the version in, uh, on stage, and neither of us are as familiar with the, the stage production itself. But I wonder if there's other parts of the score we want to dig into. Yeah, the one other song I want to dig into, or I, I don't know how deeply I want to dig, but I want to mention Zip, which is, there's one other character, yep. Gladys, mm-hmm. and um, Gladys is just a performer at the Shea Joey, which is Joey's nightclub that Vera pays for, and um, so she sort of is in charge of all of the songs that are just sung at the nightclub within the world of the musical, and this one song, Zip, she's playing a reporter um, who's interviewing Gypsy Rose Lee, and you might know Gypsy Rose Lee as the real-life stripper burlesque person who the show Gypsy is about. Um, mm-hmm. And at this time, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee was not just you know some person you knew from Gypsy. She was like a real famous uh, performer. And this song called Zip was sort of about her. It was kind of funny. Um, well, let's play a little clip from it. It's a great idea. What do you think of while you work? And she said, while I work, my thoughts go something like this. Walter Lippmann wasn't brilliant today. Will Saroya never write a great play? I was reading Schopenhauer last night. I think that Schopenhauer was right. And we're back. Um, and also, in the, it's worth noting, in the 2008 revival, the 2007-2008 revival of the show on Broadway, they actually, I think, had Gladys pretending to be Gypsy Rose Lee so that she could actually do a burlesque strip number for the audience rather than just singing about someone else doing stripping. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that feels very scandalous for the 40s, um, now that I know that this musical was in the 40s. Um, yeah, that is interesting, right? Like a, a song about a stripper stripping mm-hmm. in a nightclub in a musical. Uh, it's like a lot of layers there, but... Yeah. Anyway. And you know, I, I don't think, yeah, I the, mean... The lyrics are clever. And everything was more buttoned up in the 40s than now, to be sure. But I, we often... Right. Um, the 50s, we sort of have this you know, stereotype of, like, you know, the very, like, buttoned-up 50s, you know, very sexually uh, tied back. If you, if you listen to, like, a lot of lyrics, even from the 1920s, you know, it, it really ebbs and flows, sort of how open people are talking about sexuality. Um, right. So, I mean, obviously, you know, the 40s, like, th- these lyrics are probably as far as you could go on stage. But mm. I, it, it wouldn't have people probably weren't like calling for the show to be censored or anything in Manhattan in 1940. Um, And even if you go 10 years later, I mean, I don't know if you're hearing stuff this overtly sexual, even 10 years later. um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just sort of just, just to separate this from like our vision of like the further you go back in time, the less likely they'll be willing to sort of talk about sex. It, it ebbs and flows, and I oh, think... absolutely, I mean... Yeah, I, I yeah. think a few years after this, we're going to see this kind of talk they're having in Pal Joey maybe be less acceptable. But then again, they revived it in 1952, so what, what do I know? Maybe people have always been okay talking about sex, and we just want to believe that we're more enlightened than people were in the past. I mean, I think that's, like, a good point you make. I mean, um... 
I don't know. Uh, Shakespeare was all sex jokes, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So, and that's a really uh, sort of far-reaching example, but I think it is worth noting, right? I mean, it does shift. I mean, we're looking at the American musical specifically, right? Um, and so just, like, thinking about... It's part of why I'm interested in, like, all the historical background you're giving is, like, when we look decade by decade, I like thinking about who was the president, what was going on, what were we interested in, like, what themes felt... Uh, uh, scandalous to us versus what felt, uh, I don't know, politically relevant or uh, uh, relevant, damn it, um, or appropriate. And I think another way to think of it is, like, innuendo, even in times where you're not supposed to be explicitly sexual or, you know, show any nudity or, like, Mm. reveal a lot of skin, innuendo has probably always been kind of okay to get away with, um... Even in the, even in the fifties, innuendo in an adult musical for adults that you're not taking your kids to, I think, has always been kind of okay. But I mean, again, the fact that everyone's talking so much about how sexual this musical is means that it was revolutionary, and that musicals sure. weren't even this level of innuendo is pretty a lot for uh, 1940. So I, I don't want to like right. take away too much. No, from I mean, that. the sense of like the seediness comes through. I think right, like you know, up to that point, like shows that had I think a lot of sex in them. It, there was a sense of it being sort of grand and high society um and here it's like no these are just like these are street people you know what i mean in that sense like he's a he's a he's a nightclub owner he's a he's an everyman and this is what his sex life is like um mm. i find that very interesting yeah oh, i had something else interesting to say but if it was truly interesting it'll come back to me well uh, what else do we have to talk about because i i mean i feel like i'm kind of pal joeyed out i feel pretty pal joeyed out too i think we should get on to our ranking Oh, yeah, the ranking. Oh, duh, that's the best part of the show. I totally agree. <laughs> okay, yeah, so everyone knows we do a ranking. Each of us gives a score from 1 to 10 um, on was this show important, was this show good for its time, and is this show good if it was going to be staged today? Um, Great. I totally have. Okay, perfect. Um, so first we're going to do was it important. Uh, do you have any ideas? I, I'm trying I mean, to think of mine right now. I'm trying to remember what I said last week. I think I gave Porgy and Vesta six and a half. Mm. You did. Okay, great. Wasn't important. Um, I'm going to give it a four and a half. Interesting. Yeah. Less important than Porgy and Bess. Well, I think, yeah, Porgy and Bess was sort of like genre bending and, uh, you know, groundbreaking a lot of the ways we talked about. You know, this feels like, uh, uh, yeah, I think think not not hugely. I mean, it feels like even we are sort of failing to describe like exactly how it broke ground other than, you know, sort of being overtly sexual. And the plot, we talked a little about the plot, the way the plot moves, but um, in some ways those feel like, um, I don't know, like an obvious sort of type of progress. There's nothing going on for me and pal Joey that's like truly out of the ordinary or strange. Uh, That might be my 2017 sensibility. But what do you think? Yeah, so I'm going to go in a different direction and give it a nine, actually, in what's what? important. Well, so in, in part, I'm just trusting Brooks Atkinson, who says that this was the beginning of the golden age of musicals. And also, I mean, so we talked a little bit about how it's very integrated. Um, the songs aren't totally unrelated to the plot. They actually sing about the things that are happening. They sing about Joey opening a nightclub in the song In Our Little Den of Iniquity. They're singing about their apartment where they go and have sex. Like, they're actually singing about things that are happening in the plot. Um, and this led very directly th- only three years later into Oklahoma, which is the most important musical of all time. 
Um, well, so, we will debate that in the future. <laughs> yeah, may, I mean, maybe you disagree. Uh, I'm, I'm telegraphing the score I'm going to give it, but I'd say that is the single most important musical of all time, and this really was like the 1.0. Not really. I mean, it's very different from Oklahoma. But yeah, this is a setup. Yeah, yeah. You see this as sort of the, the, the takeoff for that. Uh-huh. All right, interesting. Well, uh, agree to disagree. <laughs> yes. So now we're going to say, <laughs> was it good? At the time it opened, how good was this show compared to the other shows you could have seen? Um, see there, I think I'm probably going to go a little higher. Um, I think I'm going to give it a, a seven and a half. I'm really okay. feeling the halves right now. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven and a half because, uh, uh, I think I recognize that like this show was probably a, a real hoot <laughs> back in the forties. I think it was probably a fun night out for people. And I uh, gave it a and, seven because... Yeah. Oh, sorry, you didn't finish. Go ahead. No, no, that's it. I think I'm good. I'm good. You have you gave You're it good? a seven. Okay, yeah, I gave it a seven because it was similar to you. Um, it was kind of a hoot, but I mean, the reviews weren't amazing. Um, right. It's less fun than other shows at a time when I think the metric you cared most about when you're going to spend money and spend a night going out to theater is how fun is this going to be. So, right. I mean, a seven's a good score. If if I made a show that got a seven like i wouldn't be upset but yeah so i'll <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with that seven sure all right great now is Excellent. it good today and i mean mm, you go first for this one okay i'm gonna give it a two which is actually the same that i gave to porky and bess and showboat i think i just like i don't want to give something a one but um the interesting thing is they actually did revive this a few years ago. And maybe it was just that that specific production was lifeless, um, which is sort of mm-hmm. what a lot of the reviews got at. But it didn't do well. And listening to the soundtrack now, I mean, I, I'm not dying to hear any of these songs on the stage. The, it, the only dance numbers are sort of the ones that aren't even starring the main characters. I It, it doesn't seem like something I would want to go see. If, if I heard it open up uh, down the street... Or like off off Broadway or something, and it was it was only like thirty bucks to go. I still don't think I would go. go. I don't think I would yeah. go. I mean, I don't know. Now my brains run wild, and I'm like envisioning what's like the dark experimental theater version of Pal Joey that I would totally want to see. Um, so I don't know. I think that there's material there that could be fun. You know, there is like the the love triangle story feels compelling. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna give it a. I'm gonna give it a three. Okay. I'm gonna give it a three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there we are. Um, That's I think our total now. Our total. Okay. I think, and I, I can recheck this later, but it seems I gave it an 18 total. You gave it a 14. So if we combine those, that's 32, which makes this our third ranking. So we've got Showboat in first with 42. Anything goes in second with 37. Pal Joey in third with 32, and Porgy and Bess in Wait. fourth with 26. Did you add 18 and 13 and get 32? I had 18 and 14. No, 14. 14. Oh, great. Math. Math, guys. Math is math is wonderful. Okay. Great. Okay. So, all right. So, where, where does that where does that place pal Joey? So, I just said we're not the, uh, not the best. Not oh, I see worst. what you're saying. You mean, right. like, in general? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. I, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Um, it's not that great. <laughs> It's it's closer to our last place than it is to our first two. Would you say it's scabrous? 
I would call it scabrous. I'm embarrassed that we didn't know. I mean, it's like one of those words you read someone say scabrous and you know what they mean, but you don't actually know what it means. Yeah, I mean, it sounds Um, like scabs, which is what it means, which is really not the note I want to end on today. So anyway, why don't you you take us out on a note other than scabrous? (laughs) Absolutely, I can do that. So uh, next week, we are going to be talking about Oklahoma, finally, from 1943, the big revolutionary musical. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Binge on any podcast app so that you'll be able to get each episode as soon as it comes out. You can also find all our episodes, along with links and pictures, at our website, broadwaybinge.podbean.com. You can check us out on Twitter at Broadway underscore binge, where you can join the conversation and leave us a tweet, which we might read on the air. More on that in a second. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, which will help more people to discover the podcast. So uh, this is Jeremy here. I'm recording this at a later date without Hannah because we've actually just gotten our first tweet sent to us uh, from Brendan Fitzpatrick, who is a very notable person in reality TV circles. And uh, Brendan says, definitely worth a solid chunk discussing this Frank Sinatra movie version of Pal Joey and how he influenced the popular songs of musicals of that era by recording his own versions. Um, and unfortunately, we got that tweet after we uh, recorded this whole Pal Joey episode, but we still probably wouldn't have watched the Pal Joey movie anyway because it was so different from the actual underlying musical. Uh, but Brendan is right. It is worth talking about uh, Frank Sinatra. So I'll just note that um, this was sort of the beginning of many uh, musical adaptations that Frank Sinatra in. He was in On the Town. I believe he was in Guys and Dolls. Um, and he would cover a lot of the songs we've played so far. When I play you little clips of songs, I always have the option of playing Frank Sinatra covers. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but he really covered every song. And so much of what we think of today as the classic Broadway sound um, was sort of given to America by Frank Sinatra. You'd hear his covers of these songs more than you'd hear the actual cast albums of the songs. Uh, So uh, Broadway owes a great debt to Frank Sinatra, And we're going to be talking a lot more about him in the future. So uh, thank you, Brendan, for uh, giving us that tweet. Um, Everyone else listening, please uh, send us tweets if you have anything you want us to talk about. And we will talk about those things because we have so few tweets right now. We'll take what we can get. And see you next week on Broadway Binge.